welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 39 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Oh, very well, Mary. Uh, just a comment. I note that network contributing editor Christine Negroni has a fascinating new book out called The Crash Detectives. I don't know if you've yes. seen this. Yes, we actually wrote a preview piece about this book, and now we need to go ahead and uh, do a review of the book. So we're looking forward to doing that. Have you guys interviewed her yet? Yes, we did. In, in the uh, Airplane Geeks episode that's just out today, episode 422, we had Christine on, and she told us uh, about the book and some of the background. And just we had a fascinating conversation. So I highly recommend the book. Fantastic. I've got it in. Uh, I, I, she, she was kind enough to send me a, um, the book, so I can't wait to get stuck in and, and to read it. Um, before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we are all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, aviation journalist, world traveler, aircraft interiors expert, and Runway Girl Network contributing editor John Walton joins us again, this time from Japan. Welcome back to the show, John. Konnichiwa, Mary. How are you? <laughs> Good. Oh, John, it's been years since my travels to Japan, visiting the airlines there uh, on business. I, I really miss it, so I'm envious that you're, uh, you're able to be in Japan. Wonderful country. Wonderful people. Oh, it's, it is so great. Everyone is really friendly. And, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting is it's really easy to get about without really having any Japanese at all. Yes. Um, my Japanese is, is terrible, basically trained Japanese, and that's it. <laughs> um, and I find that, you know, between Google Translate these days and, um, you know, just people being very friendly in Japan, it's super easy. And fascinating food, too, along the way. <laughs> absolutely. I had some horse sushi the other day, which was absolutely delicious. Oh, my. my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Little challenging, little challenging, but delicious. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First, you'll no doubt have heard about the replacement Samsung Galaxy Note 7 that exploded on a Southwest Airlines 737 recently. Well... The incident serves as yet another reminder that in-flight PED smoke and fire events are on the rise in aircraft cabins. Now, John, you've written extensively about what the crew should do in the event of a fire. If a device overheats, how are the crew trained to react? Well, it really depends on where the device is overheating. So if it's to hand or if it's burning its way through someone's pocket, the optimal solution is to immediately immerse it in what British authorities in their training videos call copious amounts of non-flammable liquid. <laughs> uh, now, typically, that's going to be dumping the device in a galley kitchen insert that's just been filled with water. So that's what happens if you, if you can reach it, if you see it starting to smoke, and you're like, you know, this is likely to be an issue. Um, and that's around preventing the thermal runaway because these devices with these lithium-ion batteries can burn even when there's very little oxygen available. Now, if it's an overhead bin, things are slightly different because you don't want to open the bin, add a lot of oxygen as the bin opens, and make it go woomph, essentially. 
So the idea is to open the bin slightly, spray in as much of the fire extinguishant as possible, and then close the bin to attempt to extinguish the fire by uh, basically depriving it of oxygen. After that, you then immerse in water. So it really is about preventing this fire, but also preventing a thermal runaway that's going to cause explosions. Interesting, John. Now, of course, there are a plethora of fire containment kits on the market, everything from bags to cases with an electronic device scoop that ensures crew don't have to touch the device, even with safety gloves. But these uh, solutions that are on the market aren't actually uh, necessarily given the seal of uh, approval in the way of FAA or EASA guidance. And as you suggest, you know, regulators say that the best way to deal with battery fires is to stop the thermal runaway first by, you know, essentially putting it out uh, with a fire extinguisher, dousing it with water. But, you know, there's a lot of these different containment kits on the market. And they are making some headway with airlines and business jet operators, despite the fact that safety regulators haven't included it necessarily in their guidance. What do you think of that? Do you think that there is a better way than, than the protocol you just outlined that crew undertake? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because, I mean, the, this risk is is developing and changing all the time. So it's in, I, I realise it is tricky for the regulators to get their heads around and, and, and to, to really, you know, up, update crew in particular with what the current thinking is as these batteries get bigger and as we all carry more PEDs around. I mean, I, I for one, can't wait for the first time someone drops a set of Bluetooth headphones and crunches that in a seat and that gets starts smoking. That's going to be an absolute nightmare. Oh, um, you know, we, we, we wrote about this on, on Monterey Girl Network. It's one of the issues for airlines as, as, as we go wireless with headphones. Yeah. Um, but I guess the thing about some of these products is that they are, I mean, they're, they're not unsafe, but they're not regulator approved. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is that the regulator is being a little slow about this. Um, and I think that there are airlines and business jet operators that want to take a belt and braces approach. You know, they want to make sure that they've got both the protocols for, for, you know, dousing it in a bucket of water, but also to have the option of things like these um, containment bags and containment boxes and the kind of things that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, I'm relatively relieved that the airlines are taking the initiative on this one. Um, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. And certainly, as soon as something catches on fire, we hear about it through the media these days. So airlines don't want that bad press, which, or indeed, you know, airlines don't want planes to burn, which yep. is, you know, both of those things are sort of linked, aren't they? Amen. Sure, sure. You ask any pilot what's the uh, their greatest fear amongst all the risks, and they will almost universally say a fire on board is the the number one fear. But battery bags, battery containment, of course, is nothing nothing new. The the radio control hobby, the drone operators routinely use battery bags to store the lithium batteries in uh, just for that purpose of offering protection. Mm. And then, of course, we also have maybe the ultimate battery containment system, which is the Boeing 787, right? After the battery issues that they had uh, with those early on, they didn't fix the thermal runaway problem. They just built a containment system around it, uh, essentially. But in both of those cases, for modelers and for, for Boeing, it's containing the battery before an incident might occur. 
And here we're talking about with PEDs, kind of a different situation where the the battery is not in a containment system. And if you have some kind of an issue, how do you get it into the containment system? Yeah, that's that's definitely part of the issue. Um, and, and of course, this is something that's so funny that you actually mentioned this, uh, because we pushed out a story about one of these uh, fire containment bags um, after the Samsung Note 7 uh, incident on Southwest Airlines. And we received in very short order a number of responses from uh, stakeholders in the industry that are offering kind of competing uh kits competing, uh, devices competing, everything to, to what we had described in this piece. And uh, one gentleman said, uh, you know, that that's all very well and good to have this kind of containment device, but the actual moving of the device into the bag could really cause a lot of danger to the person, to the member of crew, you know. So I guess this is why it's, it's essential to enforce the fact that you extinguish as much as possible and douse with as much uh, water uh, or non-flammable liquid as possible before it gets moved into the bag, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that has to happen first. Uh, and it all has to happen quickly. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, we saw just how quickly that um, that uh, Note Seven went through that carpet and um, the uh, the structure beneath the carpet on that seven three seven, and that's you know that's that's starting to get pretty worrying. These devices are increasingly powerful, and and that's great for consumers, um, but it is a problem from an airline safety point of view. For sure. All right. Well, next, uh, John's written a really deep dive piece about American Airlines' decision to dump its patented business class seat on the 787-8 and also some refitted 777-200ER aircraft due to problems with embattled seatmaker Zodiac. John, what were the big PAXX lessons learned from this experience? Oh, gosh, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of lessons. Um, and, and, you know, I think let's, let's start off by saying that it's really great that American Airlines is, is engaging like and really starting to share this information out so that all seat makers and all airlines can learn from this. I think that it's really helpful for them to be you know, talking to, to media. But I guess in terms of the, the big essence, we're looking at two real themes here. The first is around the fact that bespoke seats are really hard to get right. Um, and I think that's true both in terms of the criticism that arose in the shape of the seat and its lack of length. Um, as soon as it debuted, we had a, a couple of people writing into us with pictures saying, look, this is I, this is a very short seat and I'm not a particularly tall person and I feel cramped in. But also in terms of the instability issues that were raised. So I likened this when I was talking to American Airlines about the concept that you put the wheels as far to the corners of a car as you can to get more stability. If the wheels are towards, further towards the centre, the car rocks more. And that's what you get with this seat. Because each seat is forwards, backwards, there's always a person on the other side of the central wall. So when one person moves, the other person really feels it. Now, American says this issue was worse than the 787 because the seat tracks on which the seats are installed are narrower. But the 777 is also affected. And since the piece was written, I've had people contacting me and saying, you know, I hear what American is saying, but I just flew this on the 777 and it was a very similar issue there. Oh, no. So, yeah, you know, and it is it is tricky. Airlines want to provide the best comfort they can to get the premium passengers, but they also want to make sure that the airline is as dense as possible to satisfy the accountants, and that makes sense. But I think we're going to see a lot more airlines taking existing seats and existing seat structures, but with more customization of the look. 
um, rather than wanting an entirely new patented bespoke custom suit. Okay, John, I have so many questions for you that I've actually jotted them down (laughs) because you're absolutely right. It's fascinating that uh, an airline was this forthcoming. It's certainly not something we're accustomed to, are we, as journalists? The airlines manage the message actually pretty stridently. Um, So reading your your actually two articles um, about this – was actually fascinating and and props to American for being so forthcoming. So number one, the shakiness, is this a safety issue? You know, I don't think so. Um, it doesn't seem to be like something that's actually properly unstable. I think it is just an annoyance because you are literally sleeping right next to, but on the other side of a thin plastic wall, to the next person. Okay. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's a safety issue there at all. Okay. Why... I mean, I know that it's kind of explained a little bit in the piece, but, you know, if American could go back and do it all over again, would it have opted for the Cirrus seat uh, that it used on, on its other 777s that it got via U.S. Airways? That's a really interesting question. Now, um, this seat, this custom American forwards, backwards, herringbone seat um, is called Concept D. Um, which is a very snappy name because there was a concept A through C and this was concept D. Now, one of those concepts was Cirrus. And while American didn't say this, my gut feeling is that Cirrus is not dense enough for what American wanted for these aircraft. Mm. Um, Now, of course, American has ended up in essentially that position, but with a different type of reverse herringbone seat. Okay. Right? They've okay. got they've got super diamond on the seven eight nines and on um, most of the triple seven two hundred ER fleet forthcoming. Okay, so I hate to be cynical here, <laughs> but is it possible uh, that Zodiac's problems uh, were kind of conveniently timed for American to drop its patented seat that it wasn't too terribly pleased with in the end? Uh, not just the shakiness issues, but also as you mentioned, negative passenger experiences, people feeling that the footwell was way too small. Was that a conveniently timed announcement or was it quite definitely due to Zodiac? My 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 feeling on this is it was more Zodiac related. Okay. Um, obviously, it's a big climb down for American. Um, it does introduce uh, inconsistency within the fleet. And American has been quite fond of having that consistency. If you look back to their previous generation of product, that angled life lap was across the Um, So they like that consistency, and I think they'd have wanted that consistency to remain. Mm. Um, I do think it is about this production situation, right? I mean, we already knew that this side of the industry is over-consolidated. There are too few players going for too few, too big contracts. Um, You know, rather than having a, a contract from American Airlines and US Airways, you've now got a single contract from essentially both combined carrier. And that's that's really problematic because there's not the capacity in the industry to, to deal with that these days. You know, and I think that these delays with brand new 787s parked on the tarmac waiting for business class seats really hammered it home to the industry. Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing the effect of this. You know, airlines are more willing to take the gamble on new providers rather than the existing seat makers. One of the things that uh, I think maybe I had underappreciated uh, before reading some of the things that you've written uh, recently, John, is the the complexity of the seats, and but also the besides the technology involved in them, just the, the lead times and all the planning that has to go into it. It's it's really a much more complicated process, obviously, than just uh, buying a seat and bolting it into the airplane. Yeah, it sure can be. 
Um, you know, airlines are renowned for making slow decisions on product. But if you're an airline and you, you're not the size of American Airlines and you want to buy a seat relatively quickly, it's not an impossible thing to do. If you're happy to take a seat that you customize cleverly through the use of materials and um, shrouds that are out of the way of the head impact criterion in particular, which is one of the key certification uh, issues if you change part of the seat. If you, you know, do things around um, the types of surface that you use and then you um, wash that with some mood lighting, that can be super effective. When you look at Virgin Australia's version of this same BE super diamond seat that Americans using, um, it looks markedly different because in the centre divider section, they chose this uh, a very on-brand uh, purple sliding door assembly, which is out of the way of any kind of impact certification. So it's essentially irrelevant for certification purposes. But then they also wash it in a lot of you know, purple LEDs and it looks fantastic. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. I think we're, people are going to be um, choosing these much more high commonality seats. And we already saw this a little bit at the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg in April. Mary, I remember you and I were walking around Zodiac and they were um, displaying their new version of Sky Lounge, which is the seat on which United's yeah. new Polaris seat is based and which ANA and Emirates take uh, as the uh, ANA long-haul business class and Emirates A380 business. Um, and they've really cut down the number of individual parts um, for these seats and they're much more interchangeable now than they were. Um, oh, yeah. Which makes a lot of sense from a manufacturing point of view, for sure. And it also seems, and it seemed at Aircraft Interiors, that we're now into the world of kind of more iterative changes with respect to business class seats. And so far as there seems to be agreement that the Super Diamond and the Cirrus, uh, we, we saw a lot of copycats, didn't we, John? Um, in fact, you wrote a piece about that. It was something, uh, the photocopier, <laughs> herringbone photocopier, um, where multiple, multiple seat makers are, are going in that direction. And then, I guess, as you say, differentiate whether it's via mood lighting, whether it's via additional bells and whistles, and, and of course, the kind of the soft product. But that seems to be the business class standard now. Is is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, the, the outward-facing herringbone, um, where the seats face away from the aisle rather than into the aisle, that's what people want these days. That's yeah. that's the thing that overall you're going to have the best experience on. If you, if you know you're going to get one of those, you know you're going to have a pretty good run of it. Um, there are other seats that, that airlines are still installing, um, but as as you know, I keep saying, I keep banging on on Run Regal Network about the, the zero-sum problem with the staggered seats, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the Thompson Vantage, even the Thompson Vantage XL, one of the seats is on the aisle, one of the seats is away from the aisle. And the one away from the aisle is a lot more private, and you um, get bumped into a lot less. And that's a really big difference, and actually a really important difference. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting situation where you have either a set of products that are very good for everyone or you have a set of products which are slightly better let's say mm-hmm. for the people who have the seats that are actually at the windows but those are usually less than 25 percent of the seats in the cabin right so it's, it's really difficult and you know for, for my personal travel because i know how to select my seats and i know the day windows at which the airlines i'm flying on open up the various seats that they've held back for platinum frequent flyers and so on i can usually get a great seat but normal people right um don't really have that same ability or perhaps indeed desire um to to as as we say in the business garden their reservations 
um, and they end up in a seat which isn't as good. I'm really glad, John, that you appreciate the fact that you're not a normal flyer. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the things that as I, as I travel around, I, I really try to do is, um, you know, occasionally strike up a conversation with people who are flying business class and who are not there, you know, as part of, a part of their work. You know, whether that's uh, on a, uh, an award reservation that I've done or um, I found a great fair or something. And people, a, a lot of business class flyers really know what the product is that they're looking for. And, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm a 64K person. That's my seat upstairs on a 747. Mm. Right? Or um, they'll say, actually, I don't really know a lot about this, but I know the business class is nice. Um, a very good friend of mine actually flew from uh, Melbourne to Bangkok on Thai Airways. Uh, she booked business class, but she had an operational upgrade to first. And she didn't realise that it was an operational upgrade to first class until after she landed in Bangkok and saw my very excited comments to her Facebook post saying, actually, I, that's not business class, that's first class. You have won an exciting upgrade. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's, it's one of the really interesting things about doing the work that, that we all do, Mary, is remembering to put yourself back into the position of the various types of flyers who have passenger experiences uh, in whatever class it is um, and, and remembering that those people are all going to be different as well. Um, you know, your average business class cabin might contain uh, upmarket leisure flyers, it might contain solo business people, might contain business people in groups, might be uh, wealthy families. You know, there's all sorts of, 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 different, uh, uh, of different passengers and travelling for different purposes. Um, more so perhaps than ever before. And, and airlines and seat makers need to make sure that they are serving all of those needs with the same seat. <laughs> and that's very tricky. That's very tricky. All right. Well, why don't we come back down to the ground, down to the earth, and talk about high-speed rails. Once again, they're mm. attracting attention in the United States with some states actually trying to move forward with projects, including the latest high-speed rail effort in Fresno. Now, Japan is known for excelling in high-speed rail. And John, you know the system like the back of your hand. Are there any PAXX ideas in Japan that U.S. rail operators should definitely consider? Well, I guess the first max is obviously speed. Um, Japan currently has trains that run up to 320 kilometers an hour, which is about 200 miles an hour. And its next-generation maglev which is the train that floats through the use of magnetic levitation, will hit 500 kilometres an hour, or 300 miles an hour. And that's slated to, to open the first section in 11 years, in 2027. And I understand this is the technology that Japan Railways is trying to sell to Texas um, for, the, uh, for the Texas Corridor high-speed rail. So the speed thing is actually really interesting. But that's combined with connectivity. So in addition to these 320 mile, uh, kilometer an hour tracks, they've also converted a number of what they call mini Shinkansen, which are extensions to those tracks, which used to be old uh, narrow gauge lines, because Japan runs on narrow gauge, which means that the rails are closer together in Japan than they'd normally be in the US or the UK or most of Europe. And that's so that you can make the curves tighter. Um, and because it's a small and very mountainous country, that's actually very helpful. It does mean the trains go slower. So what they've done is they've pulled up the old track and laid Shinkansen-sized track on the old tracks and enabled through running all the way to Tokyo 
from uh, a lot of regional destinations in the north of Japan. And so that connectivity side of things and that single seat all the way to your destination, that's a real signature of modern Japanese high-speed rail. Um, and that's, that's also something that's really important. You know, people aren't going to want to, for example, drive to a railway station outside of town, get on a train, and then end up at another railway station outside of town elsewhere. Now, some of the Japanese stations are outside of town, but there's always a shuttle train which is dedicated to meet that Shinkansen and whisk people straight into town, often to three or four stations within town as it, as it trundles in. Um, so that connectivity side of things is really big too. John, there's oh so many reasons, of course, as to why the U.S. does not have high-speed rail yet. And many, one, many would suggest that, of course, uh, the issue of lobbying groups um, has played a serious role, whether that be highway or airline lobbies, etc. Um, in Japan, uh, you know, how does the uh, high-speed rail service compare then to the aircraft that are plying the same routes, essentially? Well, the interesting thing is that even though Japan's quite a long, thin country, train journeys are really fast and really efficient. And they're also a lot more comfortable than flying. So here's an example. For about $200, it takes five hours to travel 750 miles between Tokyo and Fukuoka by train. And that's a non-stop, single-seat, city-centre-to-city-centre trip. Now, you might, if you were willing to spend for the expensive flights, uh, take 45 minutes fewer by plane. But that'd be in a lot less comfort. So you'd have 787-style seats compared with even in the standard class of Japan Railways, um, a 2-3 layout, 18.3-inch uh, wide seats, pitch about 41 inches. Mm. And if this is starting to sound like US domestic first, that kind of thing all the time. So, you know, and also, while the Japanese version of the TSA is a lot less of a nightmare, I mean, it'd be pretty hard to be any worse, um, even so, travelling to and from the airport is tricky. Um, you know, you have to make sure that you'll get just the right train and you've, you know, left just enough time and you don't want to cut it too fine. That's just stressful. And you can't get work done. I mean, if you're travelling that um, five hours, you can actually power down and get some serious work done or you can read a book or watch TV or, you know, any number of things. Um, because Japan, <laughs> being Japan, has full 4G connectivity uh, throughout the network, even in tunnels. Wow. Um, so I mean, you can basically just be like you're in the office, um, except you're on a train. Um, and of course, you have a number of different classes of service. Um, so you can you know, really choose what you want to experience. It explains why you're so productive, John, even when you are traveling around Japan, still able to produce copious, copious amounts of copy for Runway Girl Network. <laughs> oh, you know, Marie, there are times when, you know, rather than holding up in a hotel room and writing for the day, I'll just hop on a train yeah. um, and, and write on the train. You know, I've got a little um, portable Wi-Fi dongle that I can just plug into my laptop and it's basically like being in, a, in, in the office. Um, it's, it's, it's great. And, you know, there are other options as well. Um, even just beyond the basic Shinkansen, so you can get on the green car, which is like their business class. So that goes from standards 2.3 to a 2-2 configuration on most of the network. Um, and so there's a 19-inch wide seats, 46-inch pitch, big recline, little leg rests that flip up, and you can get some serious work done. That's just like being in an office. Um, and even on some newer trains, they have this uh, option called Grand Class, 
which is feels a lot like you know first class like proper first class so it's a big modern swishy artistic recliner business in in this sort of one two layout with these big 21 inch wide seats and 51 inches of seat pitch and you know hot and cold running attendants and everything um and it's really really you know it's 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 beyond anything you get on a on a domestic u.s uh airline until you start getting into the realm of the real flatbed seats but what's very interesting is that in competition with the airlines, particularly in the west of Japan and into Kyushu, which is the island to the southwest, where the Shinkansen has only recently come to Kyushu, they just extended it down to the bottom of the island. In that area, the standard cars are actually in a more spacious layout. They've taken out one seat across. So rather than the 2-3, they've moved it into 2-2 two, two on some of the slower trains. Um, and even some of the faster trains as well, actually. And so that's directly to compete with airlines in these markets both in terms of comfort and because the Shinkansen was a late starter here, because people are used to flying in these more remote areas. And I think that's going to be something that high-speed rail in the States will really need to look at, is that people are used to flying, even though it's a pain, even though everyone you know hates the trek out to the airport and hates the weight and the security and everything. People are used to flying and they, and, and they know how to do it these days. And to, to, to really win people over people really have to start thinking about passenger experience on the train um, in the way that, you know, to an extent, they already do on the, uh, on the Acela and the North, Northeast Corridor. But that, that, that is what I think is going to be a real, a real seller. Fantastic stuff, John. My goodness. And, and we will include some links to uh, some of your uh, field reports. Uh, and I know I'm going to say it wrong. It's Shinkansen. Am I saying that wrong? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, it literally means new trunk line. New trunk line. Shinkansen. And you've written some fascinating pieces about the foot, footpath, Shinkansen, and the modern art Shinkansen. So we'll direct uh, readers to those, those reports. They're, they're really quite fascinating. Um, Alas, we are rapidly coming to a close. I, I want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can find us online at runmygirlnetwork.com and on iTunes. And, of course, you can find uh, a lot of John's fantastic content there. Uh, be sure to follow all the Run My Girl Network activity on Twitter or at at Girl, And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Please join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions. And I'd like to thank John for being our guest. John, very quickly, are you? am I right in saying that you are actually writing a guide to Japan? Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of a side project. Um, okay. Just to, just to, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about from people asking, you know, how, how do I do Japan? Um, and so I'm putting together a little, you know, a little ebook or something that'll, um, that's basically helping me to avoid answering those questions individually every time I get asked. Okay, fantastic. Where, where can listeners find you at then on Twitter and elsewhere? Well, I'm always on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm that John there. And you can follow along with my Japan travels in particular, which always include a lot of passenger experience shots on the that John in JP hashtag. Okay. Well, John, thank you again. Uh, the depth of your knowledge and experience is impressive as always. So we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.